0: Play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show.
1: Cairo, Seattle.
0: I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, one of the best tennis players in the world, Maria Sharapova. Maria won five career Grand Slam titles, an Olympic medal, and last year, at just 32 years old, she retired after playing tennis for 28 years. But Maria is still working. A lifetime lover of sweets, she is the CEO of her own candy company. It's called Sugarpova.
2: If there's anyone that knows how to take care of their body, it's me for so many years. But I also know that it's important to treat
0: yourself. Maria is Russian. And even though she moved to the US as a child, her comfort foods are still the ones she grew up eating in her grandmother's kitchen. So I chat with Bonnie Morales, owner of Kachka in Portland, Oregon, which is considered by many to be the best Russian restaurant in the country. And potato, potato, tomato, tomato. But when talking about the potato pancakes popularly eaten at Hanukkah, do you say latka or do you say latki? Sarah Buden-Benor is a Jewish linguist and professor at Hebrew Union College. Sarah joins the show to explain why that word has two different pronunciations. But first, my conversation with Maria Sharapova. Maria had a very different childhood than most. Like a lot of professional athletes, she got serious about her sport at a very young age.
2: I do ask myself very often, did I really start playing tennis at four years old? (laughs) And it is a true story. Um, I picked up tennis in Sochi, Russia. I was born in Chernobyl uh, during the uh, Chernobyl explosion. We moved to Sochi, and that's where I started, um, I guess you'd say, the tennis dream and the tennis goals that I had developed. Um, when I was uh, six and a half or seven, um, my parents decided that we'd move to the United States. Tennis wasn't as big or successful as a sport in Russia as it was in the United States. And so the challenges of getting a visa uh, were insane. Um, my father went to the embassy with a with the only suit that he had owned, and said, um, "You know, my, my daughter is is a gifted tennis player, and I really believe she's going to be number one in the world." And after a, a brief conversation, the guy just he believed in him and uh, stamped his passport wow. <laughs> with a visa. And a few days later, we were both my father and I were on our flight to Miami. Um, leaving my mother behind because she wasn't able to get a visa for the first couple of years. I was still so young. I was in this new country. I was um, under my father's wings and kind of just guided by this new reality that I was in. But
0: her father was right. Maria did become the number one tennis player in the world. After she moved to the States, Maria's entire life was centered around tennis. Whether that was practicing her serves or taking a boxing class at just eight years old, she lived and breathed sports.
2: I I wasn't tall from a young age and my parents wanted me to grow like I would drink (laughs) carrot juice all the time. They put this bar up on the ceiling and and I would hang before I went to sleep because in the night is usually when your body's relaxed and it develops and grows and And so they wanted me to get long because they thought that for my sport, that would be very helpful. It's funny because I'm, I am the tallest in my family and I always joke with them that I was like, are you, how did I get so tall? And they're like all this carrot juice. Yeah. We made (laughs) you, we stretched you until you were tall (laughs) (laughs) and stretched me. Don't worry. Maria
0: did not survive on carrot juice alone. Ever since she was a young girl, she's been a big fan of cooking and eating. From what I've read, it sounds like you still have a really strong connection to Russian food. How did you maintain that connection in the States? What are some of your favorite foods from Russia?
2: Oh, I do. I love food. (laughs) And I was so excited to do this podcast with you because I could talk about food all day long. And I grew up next to um, my grandmother for those four, six years of my life in her kitchen. And I would just watch her prepare the borsches and salads and potato pancakes and these baked goods and desserts. And I would constantly ask her for the recipes because I say, you know, grandma, when I grow up, I I want to make, you know, your your food, these versions of, of your food. And, and she would always like shake her head and and she said, you know, I, I wouldn't want you to be in the kitchen when you grow up. And I was like, why? This, it, it looks so good and it. And it ends up being so delicious. And she's like, I think you have a, a bigger purpose in life. And it's so interesting looking back at that because so many of those feel-good memories that I have of my childhood are next to her in the kitchen. Um so going back to those specific foods, um, you know, she would make these little uh, dumplings. We call them pilmanis, which oh, essentially, God, yes. um, you know, are, are little dumplings everywhere from from Italy to Ukraine to Russia. And she would hand make the dough, and and she would cut them with little uh, vodka shot glasses. That's how she created the shape those those little round shapes for the for the perimeter of so the So cliche itself. Russian,
0: right? Using a vodka so shot glass. Russian.
2: I mean, and just so useful too. Like it would be the perfect size. <laughs> and I would just watch how technical she was with this execution and how focused she was. And I just, I don't have the patience for doing things like that. And then I still don't, but the pulmennies were my favorite because she would make a lot of them. She'd make a, a huge um, batch ahead of time and she'd put them in the freezer. And I knew that every time I'd go to grandma's house, she would boil some for me. So that was my treat.
0: Mm, Oh, those are so good. What would you choose to eat for your last meal?
2: I've thought about this question for a few days now, and I've changed my answer a few times, (laughs) (laughs) but my final answer is the potato latkes, Um, because potato latkes are, first of all, you get to put sour cream on them, which in Russia, that is our, you put sour cream on everything. It's like our ketchup. And I grew up with that. And the way, like the technique that my grandmother used for these potato pancakes it was so diligent. Like she would, uh, she would clean the potato with the specific brush that she had. Um, she would shave the potato with a knife. Then she would use this, this little, I don't know, it was like an old school machine to shred the potato. And then she cut the onion and it was a production. But the end result was magical. And the taste uh, stays with me forever.
0: Okay, you're talking to a Jewish girl, and I love my (laughs) latkes, so this is so cool. I didn't know—is that what you call them in Russia too? Is it the same word? Yes, that's what we call them. And do you do sour cream and applesauce, or just sour cream?
2: I only do sour cream, but I I would also do applesauce if if I had it. We don't have that in the pantry, but I, I I should add that. Well,
0: I read that you do eat a lot of baby food, so I'm surprised that you don't have applesauce around at all times.
2: So I used to eat um, baby food during my matches. My match was going to a third set, and I needed food or banana. Um, and I did have applesauce and there was a little raspberry in there. It was actually funny because my fans would be like, "What? what is she eating out of that little can? <laughs> um, and I traveled with it. I, I ate like on the plane. I thought that was the safest thing to eat on the plane. Yeah. <laughs> as, as I wasn't a huge fan of um, airplane food. So I, I would always have little jars of baby food. Oh my God. That's so funny. So
0: I love that you love sour cream because I love sour cream so much. I talked about it so much on the radio that Dairy Gold heard me and sponsored me. And I got to like be a spokesperson for sour cream for maybe three years. And it was the best thing of my entire life because they just kept shipping it to me. And wow, that is
2: such a, I love that fact. That's such a fun fact. It's so funny.
0: And I like to just eat it plain out of the tub, which Americans think is disgusting.
2: You do? I well when when we serve it like on a little plate and and like in a little bowl and then we have a spoon and then at the end there's usually like a little bit left like we don't go through the entire bowl and as everyone's cleaning the dishes I'm usually there like in the corner (laughs) (laughs) finishing a little bowl of sour cream so we're on the same page here yeah my fiance looks at me like I'm I'm crazy For her last
0: meal, Maria Sharapova wants potato latkes with sour cream. Latkas are palm-sized patties of shredded potato and onion mixed with egg and flour and salt. Although I have never used flour. I always use matzo meal in my latkes because that's what my mom does. Anyway, you take that batter and you fry these little pucks until they are golden and crisp on the outside, but still nice and soft on the inside. So you have this hot, crispy-edged little potato pancake topped with cool, creamy sour cream. Do you know how to make them? Is that something that you make at home?
2: i do occasionally i made them a couple of months ago and we usually make them when there is either like a birthday or some type of celebration with we open a bottle of champagne um sometimes we we order a small a small jar of caviar to put on them um but Mm -hmm. i think the trick is getting rid of um, all the liquid that the onion and the potato takes up um once you braid it it's kind of it's definitely time consuming It is. And I think
0: that you have to eat them right away. So every year, except for this one, I have a big Hanukkah party and I call it latke prison because I refuse (laughs) to make them in advance because I think they need to be fresh. But I'm stuck, you know, at the stove just flipping latkes. While everybody else is having a good time, and I'm like, "Oh my god, when is this gonna be over?" But I
2: refuse. That's how I feel about cooking in general. And <laughs> <It's, laughs> sometimes you just feel like if it, like it's your party, but you're left yeah. out from the party because you chose to cook. Um, yeah. And in some ways, it is fun because everyone usually gathers around the kitchen. Um, but I, I do I, I love your style of of making latkes and eating them right away because. You're absolutely right. When they're cold, they're, they're not the same. And then and then everyone's disappointed and doesn't understand why you were so excited about them.
0: I know. Exactly. Stars, they're just like us. They love sour cream. In this episode, I have definitely found my people. More sour cream love ahead when I talk to Bonnie Morales, owner of Kachka in Portland. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Poulsbo. Or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest And there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash your last meal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P. Or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. Russian food is still a bit of a mystery for most Americans. There just aren't that many restaurants that serve it. But in 2014, Bonnie Morales opened Kachka in Portland, Oregon. It quickly became one of the city's most popular restaurants, and some have called it the best Russian restaurant in the country. But to give you a better idea of how disinterested America has been with Russian food, when Bonnie published the Kachka cookbook in 2017... It had been nearly 30 years since a Russian cookbook had been released by a major publisher in the U.S. Bonnie's parents immigrated to the U.S. from the Soviet Union in 1980. Bonnie was born a year later in Chicago. But it wasn't until she met her now husband that she really began to appreciate the food that she grew up eating.
1: What happened when we were dating is my husband, now husband, was so enamored with my mom's cooking that he started getting so excited about these things that no one else had ever really asked her about or gotten excited about. And I had never really thought twice about, you know, I went to culinary school, and classically trained chef. So as a result, like my paradigm is French cooking, you know, that's like the lens through which I see food. And so he kind of changed that because he started like getting so excited about these dishes that I just kind of took for granted. And we started getting excited about them together. And we started to realize together that like this food has a bad reputation. I had had a a poor opinion about the food myself, you know, and I started to question why that was. Um, And I think it was because it wasn't well represented in restaurants and that there wasn't anybody doing it right. I mean, you had a lot of Russian restaurants serve sushi. If you go to actual Russian restaurants, a lot of them are actually catering to Russians who also have this negative opinion about their own food. And so a lot of the dishes aren't actually Russian. There's a lot of Caesar salad and sushi. And that's sort of in a roundabout way to answer your question, why we opened Kochkas to fix that. Because we knew in our right minds we should never open a restaurant, but no one was doing this. And we kind of felt like if we didn't do it, that that might never happen. <laughs>
0: Kachka serves delicious and refined versions of Russian classics, like herring under a fur coat. It's a colorful layered salad with potatoes, carrots, salted herring, beets, this part's important, house made mayonnaise, hard boiled eggs, and dill. They serve short rib borscht, cabbage rolls, and three kinds of dumplings, including the pelmeni that Maria's grandmother made for her. Kachkas pelmeni are stuffed with pork, beef, veal, and onion, and they're dressed with butter, vinegar, Russian sour cream, and herbs. Okay, so Maria Sharapova's last meal is latkes with sour cream, which delighted me as a Jewish girl, and <laughs> I actually didn't know that that was a common or popular dish in Russia. So I see you actually have it on your menu as well. Crispy draniki—is that how you pronounce it? Draniki, yeah, draniki. Okay, can you talk about? you know, kind of the role that that dish plays in Russia is that popular? And also how important is sour cream in the eating culture?
1: Oh my god. Sour cream is its own. I don't know if you know in French cooking, there's something called mother sauces. Yeah. And they're like they're the basis of everything, right? So to me, I often describe sour cream as Russia Russia's mother sauce. Just like ketchup um, is America's mother sauce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I mean I use it everywhere and in so many different ways. It's used as a braising liquid sometimes, obviously using it as a condiment. It's often used as a thickener in soups. I love
0: sour cream and I can eat it straight out of the tub and everyone thinks that that's so gross. And what's the difference between that and eating yogurt plain, you know, so there's like these ideas that people get in their heads, like, Uh you know, sour cream plain (laughs) is gross. Yogurt is okay. And I'm just like, I'm so fascinated of how these kind of cultural
1: stigmas get started. You're so right. And in fact, with sour cream and yogurt, it's literally just a slightly different culture and a different milk fat content. They're like different accidents that happened in a farmhouse. You know what I mean? Like the bacteria is just yeah. slightly different. They're more similar than different. I never thought about that one. I, I like that. I like that analogy.
0: Yay, I need someone on my side here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I am team sour cream all the way. Woohoo! And Draniki, yes, very, very, very popular and everywhere. I would say they're actually more Belarusian than Russian. I mean, I'm not a food historian. (laughs) Someone's probably going to tell me I'm wrong. But um, most potato dishes in the Soviet Union often come from Belarus and uh, Ukraine. People call the people of Belarus bulbashe, which is "bulbash" is the Belarusian word for potato. And it basically means potato people. So... (laughs) My family's from Belarus, and we have so many different potato dishes. It feels like my mother can make an entire weeks of meals from different versions of potato. And draniki are one of those things, or potato lockies, as most Americans know them. And I know that a lot of the times you see potato lockies as being this like really lacy, crispy, thin, almost like a hash brown. Draniki are not typically like that. They're usually a little bit thicker. There's a higher amount of flour, of egg. We always have kefir in our batter for that tang. That's a really, really common uh, oh. addition. I don't think that's very, I don't think that's unusual. I think most folks do that. Grated onion is a must. Um, yes, I think most people would not consider it to be a without that.
0: So in American Jewish culture, latkes are pretty much only eaten at Hanukkah. They are the signature celebration dish of that holiday.
1: Are the draeniki, is that eaten year-round? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, there's no seasonality. And I mean... It's considered to be a Jewish food here, but it's actually a really fascinating subject um, because a lot of the immigration from Eastern Europe and Soviet Union in America started off as Jewish refugees. A lot of what in the U.S. we think of as Jewish food, quote unquote, is actually not at all Jewish whatsoever. It has, doesn't necessarily have a Jewish lineage. And that's a perfect example. Another one is like uh, chavelle, or sorrel soup. Um, You see it a lot of times in jars and like the kosher section. That's like the most generic summer soup you could possibly have in all of Russia. Like there's nothing Jewish about it whatsoever.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. So you're basically saying that because the Jewish people were the ones who left and came to the States, it just became Jewish
1: because they were Jewish. Right, exactly. Wow. And okay. it's actually more about the region that they came from rather than how it related to their culture specifically.
0: Kachka is basically a love letter to Bonnie's family and heritage. So when she was looking to name the restaurant, she thought of a story that her dad often told her as a child,
1: the story of her Jewish grandmother surviving World War II. She had just escaped from this ghetto that her and her whole family were in, in the middle of the night with a baby in her arms. And she had to leave her whole extended family behind because they knew that if they all went, they would all get caught. Um, so she left her family. She was like 20 years old, I think, young baby, and ended up burying the baby along the way. I mean, it was a, such a journey, and middle of winter, and there were lots of trials and tribulations. And she almost got caught several times, but the one that was probably the closest was um, she had gone into a town for some provisions, and the town ward and the statista, basically accused her of being a Jew. And she you know, said, no, no, I'm not a Jew. I'm, I'm just a, a Ukrainian peasant passing through to see my in-laws. And he didn't believe her. He kept pressing, pressing and said, oh, yeah, if you're really Ukrainian, then how do you say duck in Ukrainian? And I mean, they're speaking in Russian. So it's utka in Russian. How do you say uh, utka in Ukrainian? And obviously she has no idea. She's never spoken a word of Ukrainian. She knows Yiddish. She knows Belarusian but that's really it. And um, she just crossed her fingers and hoped that maybe this one word was the same um, in Belarusian as it is in uh, Ukrainian. So she said kachka and turns out that it was the same and the guy let her go. So um, it is like for me, such a heroic story. Um, I think I would have just vomited (laughs) um, and curled up in a ball and given it away. But um, the chutzpah to just make it happen and she, you know, went on to fight in the partisan resistance. She's a, she's a badass, um, and so that story to me and that word always meant a lot.
0: Okay, I'm not sure if you notice, but when I talk about Maria's Last Meal, I say latkes. But both Maria and Bonnie call them latkes. And this really stood out to me because I rarely hear the latke pronunciation, and I have always wondered why some people call them latke and some people call them latke. Well, back in December, I heard this topic discussed on one of my favorite podcasts, Unorthodox. You might remember that I featured the hosts of Unorthodox as guests on this show. So I stole the idea and I called up Sarah Bunin Benor, professor of contemporary Jewish studies at Hebrew Union College. Sarah researches Jewish language in America. She says both latke and latka are American pronunciations of the original Yiddish word.
3: In Yiddish, the word is latke with a kind of a short E. In English, we don't have that same vowel in a final syllable. Instead, we have either A uh or E. Another example would be Chala. In Yiddish, it's Chale. And in English, it could be Chala or Chali. So it's a little bit random how the Yiddish sound ends up in English. I would say it probably wasn't the immigrants themselves. It was probably the immigrants' children. Because the immigrants probably continued to say lake. But I think their children, when speaking English, would not use that uh, sound at the end of the word. It wouldn't feel right to them because their native language was English. And so it was those native English speakers who probably originated the alternate pronunciations.
0: I decided to take advantage of having a Jewish linguist at my disposal and ask Sarah about something that I kind of obsess about. You've probably heard me talk about this before. It's something I talked at length about in my episode with actor Rain Wilson. I grew up with an Israeli dad, and so in the 80s, we ate hummus. And then when I got older, it started appearing as hummus when you could get it at the store. Because when I was a kid, you couldn't get it at the grocery store. They didn't have it at, you know, American pubs. And it pains me to say hummus. But I also feel kind of embarrassed sometimes saying hummus because I think that people think that I'm being pretentious. And I think this comes up a lot. When I was in college, I had a really close friend. His mom was from Mexico. And so he would say, let's go down to the store and get some tortillas. And I would say, why do you have to say it like that? And I feel now that we're kind of more woke. People are a Lot more accepting of using, you know, the pronunciation from the place where it's from. But you were talking about how people might switch the pronunciation of words within their different communities and use different pronunciations.
3: That is a great question. I totally do that with hummus. I also grew up saying hummus, and now when I go to this farmer's market and ask for hummus, I I, I hesitate. Should I say hummus or hummus? And it kind of depends who I'm talking to. But yeah, this is code switching. It's speaking differently to different audiences or when speaking about different topics. And um, I think we do that a lot. Like I certainly use different words when talking to Jews or non-Jews or when talking to certain types of Jews and other types of Jews. Uh, I did a survey in 2008 about American Jewish language and identity. And when I pre-tested it, I found that people weren't willing to answer questions about how do you say something because they say it differently to different people. So we ended up, for for several of the questions, having multiple options. How do you say the spring holiday when talking to non-Jews, when talking to Jews who are not engaged in Jewish life, and when talking to Jews who are engaged in Jewish life? And the answer might be Passover, Pesach, and Pesach right? And so I think the same is the case with hummus. We didn't test that one, but I imagine that people would say, I say hummus when talking to Jews and hummus when talking to non-Jews.
0: I think there's also something where you don't want to feel like you're correcting someone. So, when I was talking to Maria, she said latke, and then I said Lotka, and then I wished that I had said Lotki to mirror her so that she didn't feel like she was saying it wrong. And I don't know if that's just a people-pleasing thing or a woman thing or a human thing or a code-switching thing.
3: <laughs> it's it's a human thing and it is code-switching. It's it's called accommodation that we we try to accommodate to other people's language and it's often not even conscious. And and usually we're not even able to completely mirror people's speech. But we certainly sometimes try and we sometimes do it even without thinking about it.
0: Does anybody else do that thing when you travel and you just pick up the accent of the people in the country you're visiting? Like when I went to London, I had to stop myself from, you know, pip, pip, cheerio and speaking in a horrible English accent the whole time. When we come back, Maria reveals her favorite candies and why she decided to start making and selling her own. When Maria first moved to the States at six and a half or seven years old, she was smitten with American candy specifically gummies, which is something that she had never encountered before. So in 2012, when she started her own candy company, Sugarpova, gummies were her first creation. But hers are made with real fruit flavors and no artificial ingredients. Talk about what inspired you to start the company.
2: My love of sweets. From my grandmother's memory of, of making um, Russian baked goods, she would make honey cakes and eclairs and All those goodies that just inspired me um, once I traveled around the world and I explored um, all the different international types of candy. Um, When I was in my early 20s, I had a fairly significant injury and I wanted to start my own business. And although I was fairly young and green at the time, I had built a little bit of a business acumen through my my partnerships with incredible brands from which I learned a lot. And on the website, it says it's guilt-free candy. What does that mean? (laughs) <laughs> so our tagline is moderation and moderation if there's anyone that knows how to take care of their body it's me for so many years but i also know that it's important to treat yourself um it goes back to my childhood of asking my father for a bounty bar um after a really good practice well it was, it was either the bounty bar or a chupa chup lollipop but i figured with the bounty <laughs> bar you have two pieces. So you can like save one for another time. Yes,
0: I love those about, too, like... because so many people don't like coconuts. So you don't have to share it. Like you can do the fake, like, Oh, do you want the other piece? Good. No, I'm going to eat both of them. I'm so glad when they don't like coconut. I love coconut. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about your favorite candies. I know that, uh, when you travel around the world, which, you know, we're not really doing much of right now, but in the past no. you were always on a candy mission. So what were some of your favorite candies that you discovered in other countries?
2: I spent a lot of time in Japan, um, playing junior tournament and then kind of my first professional tournaments and the first candy I um, found there was this this hard liquor type candy they would do little uh drawings of um flowers on them and fruits on them and they'd come in these pop colors so I used to collect them and take them home and give them to my mom and give them to my friends in China I still love the white rabbit candy which is it's a creamy candy and it's funny because over the years um I think my fans understood that I have a sweet tooth. And so as a gift, like when I would be signing autographs at the end of matches, they would hand me bags of white rabbit Ooh. candy candy bags and I'd I'd go back into the locker room and my, my coach would be like oh this isn't right <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're like yes it is you have to hide it stash it
2: and then in Russia um I was re- I loved like the wa- the waffers that they have and their packaging is is beautiful and their chocolates um So there's a range of things. And as you see, I I don't discriminate any of them. You
0: started your company with gummies and now you have truffles and chocolate and gumballs.
2: And I'm looking at these gumballs
0: and they look exactly like tennis balls. They even look fuzzy somehow because of the (laughs) texture. They're so cute. I was wondering what your favorite candy and which flavor out of your line, what do you like?
2: Well, those gumballs, I'm I'm so happy you acknowledge the texture because those gumballs were incredibly difficult uh, to perfect. And it took months of research of, of finding um, the right mold and the right machines. Um, we ended up producing them in Spain. I said, like, we we can't have a tennis gumball unless it has that fuzzy texture. Like yeah. when you open the fresh can of tennis balls and you take out a fresh tennis ball, like that, that's what a, ball, a tennis ball looks like. Um, and we started with gummies because that I had this fascination um, with gummies when I arrived in the United States. It was a type of candy that I'd never seen back home in Russia I thought of it as a souvenir, as a gift that I would take um, to my friends when I would visit them back home and in the movie theater and seeing the selection of little stars and little um, fishes and little worms. And then being able to, like, put a package together of your favorite gummies was, at the time, was really exciting. (laughs) I didn't have a lot going on except playing tennis. Um, And at 22, I was like, we're going to start with gummies.
0: And that was Maria Sharapova's last meal. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was so lovely chatting with you. Um, Thank you. Let's talk about food anytime. It's almost Valentine's Day, which means it is candy season. So go to sugarpova.com and treat yourself to some super cute lip-shaped gummies in flavors like tart cherry or strawberry cream. Or order those fuzzy tennis ball gumballs. There are truffles, there are chocolate bars, and nothing costs more than five bucks. Thanks to Bonnie Morales from Kachka in Portland, Oregon. Kachka is currently open for takeout and they sell their dumplings frozen so you can take them and make them at home. They're also selling all kinds of Russian pantry items, including their very own house made horseradish vodka. Thanks to Sarah bunin Benor, her new book, Hebrew Infusion, Language and Community at American Jewish Summer Camps, just won the 2020 National Jewish Book Award. Mazel Tov! This episode was produced by Laura Scott and me. As always, our theme music is by Prom Queen. Make sure you are following along on Instagram. That's where you can send me a message. You can find me at Hello Rachel Bell. That's B E L L E. And thanks to everybody who has left a review on Apple Podcasts, including the latest one from Julia B98467. Be like Julia and give us a five star rating or just leave a quick review, and we will love you forever. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is your last meal. Now I can feed my cat. She is losing her mind this whole interview. (laughs) She's jumping up and walking on the keyboard and I have to keep putting her down. It's crazy. That's
3: not distracting or anything. I
0: know. I was so afraid she was going to ruin the recording. But yeah, she needs to (laughs) eat.